Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Joshua Shea, who is a recovering pornography addict and the author of Porn and the Pandemic, How Three Months in 2020 Changed Everything. He has also authored The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy relationships and co-author of he's a porn addict what now an expert and former addict answer your questions since 2018 joshua has given more interviews about pornography addiction than anybody in the world to date he has appeared on over 150 podcasts television and radio shows using his wealth of research and personal story to promote the ideas that porn addiction spans all demographics and those with a problem should seek help before it's too late, as it became in his case. He has also contributed articles about recovery to TheFix.com and Recovery Today magazine, and has developed and presents a porn addiction education lecture for churches, libraries, and other groups. He will be giving his first TEDx talk in Hartford, Connecticut in December 2020. Now more than six years into recovery, Joshua still lives in central Maine with his wife and two children. This episode, ladies and gentlemen, is so powerful. I, from beginning to end, was just like, what, what? We talk about how to reframe addiction. Uh, a lot of people struggle with that frame, that, that term addiction. And so we talk about how do we reframe addiction in general uh, we also talk about how his porn and alcohol addiction started when he was two years old. That that was the genesis, the seed. What happened? There was something that happened in his life. Uh, we talk about sex ed in schools and why women hate to have sex with virgins. Uh, it's, it's all linked, ladies and gentlemen. It's so fascinating. And we even talk for the parents out there. How do you talk to your seven and eight-year-old? about sex. Uh, we, we get into that, and it's really profound and informative uh, what Joshua shares with us. We get into wives of porn addicts. That's right, the wives and uh, what their perspective and their feelings are on being with someone who is a porn addict. And what was Joshua's main allure to porn? What was the one thing that he was really trying to get out of it uh, and then we also get into porn-induced erectile dysfunction and how do you overcome that. And Joshua shares with us a, a moment in his life, 2013, when he thought about ending his life and how he pulled himself out of that 10 to 15-minute window. Such a small window, ladies and gentlemen, uh, which is the reason for the name of my podcast, um, and uh, he shared, and it's a, such a powerful story and moment. And, uh, and I'm so glad that Joshua Shea is still with us here today, as I'm glad that you're still here with us today uh, to fight another day. I appreciate it. Uh, my hat's off to you. I know it's not always easy, but just keep showing up. Uh, go to thrivewithleo.com for one on one coaching with yours truly. And let's get to tomorrow together and with that said let's jump into the episode um and, and i'm excited to have you on joshua uh you know you you wrote a very um 
uh, relevant book for our times regarding porn and the pandemic. What what surprised you in terms of this porn and the pandemic? More than anything uh, is actually on the creator side of it. Uh, I think it's obvious that user numbers are going to go up. We're all stuck at home. We can't go out with one another. Um, You know, you've got your internet as your channel to get out to the world or talk to the world or experience the world. So I think that it's almost natural that the use of pornography goes up. However, the amount of people who became at-home porn makers really exploded. You look at a site like OnlyFans, and that site had about 300,000 users in January. It was about the 600th most popular site in the United States in January. Now, in you know July, August, you're looking at a site that has 900,000 uh, creators and is about the 50th most popular site in the United States. So over 500,000 people during this pandemic have decided to make money. They are going to go online and anywhere from PG-13 to triple X rated uh, create pornography, you know, nude pictures, sex, whatever you want to call it, uh, create that for the world because they need to make some money. So uh, to me, that's actually the most uh, interesting part. I think that's the part that we don't know what's going to happen 10, 15, 20 years from now with all these people who decided to become porn models themselves. Uh, But it's a sign of the times. And it's one of these things that uh, it's... It's scary, but it's interesting. Um, And that's, you know, when I talk to people, I try not to scare anyone. I try not to shame anybody who looks at porn or makes porn. All I try to do is share the message that we need to know what we're getting into. Uh, I don't think there's anybody in this world who starts smoking these days and doesn't know what they're getting into. They can still keep they can still start smoking. It's not illegal. You can buy cigarettes anywhere, but you know what you're getting into. We don't have that same knowledge in general society when it comes to pornography and the potential negative effects of pornography. And that's really what my message is out there, because I wonder if I would have been taught at an early age uh, the potential uh, pitfalls of pornography that I would have ended up where I did as an addict. You know, I didn't end up a cigarette addict. I didn't end up a heroin addict or a gambling addict. Um, But nobody ever said anything about pornography to me. And, uh, you know, I just think that we need to, and that that was before the internet was, you know, in, in everybody's home and in every 12 year old's pocket on their cell phone. So I think that it's just a matter of, we need to know what's going to happen because the first generation of people who grew up on the internet are now 25, 30 years old. They don't remember a world before it. And the numbers of people who are addicted to pornography in that group are startling. And if we want to have a sexually healthy society, we have to start dealing with pornography. We have to start getting over our taboos about it. And we have to recognize that pornography addiction is a real thing and educate our children about it as they're uh, developing. 
Yeah, it's definitely a real thing because I think part of it is, you know, growing up that it's expected that a, that a young man would be looking at uh, porn and nude photos and nude videos and, and the like. But, you know, because uh, it looks like I'm 44 and I think you're around my age, Joshua. I mean, I'm 44 as well. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, I mean, we just had magazines, right? And right. And, and it was still, it was hard to come by the magazines. I mean, you, you usually had to stick with a Victoria's Secret uh, catalog or, or something like that. And now uh, it, it's the, the, the plethora of websites and, and, and even Instagram, even, you know, the, the, these yoga models. And, like, it's just it seems like everybody's getting into the, the sex game, you know, sex sells, apparently, whether you're talking about porn or yoga or, or anything else has uh, been used to, to sell everything. I mentioned this to a friend the other day um, who's who's our age as well. And I said, you know, back when we were in high school in the early 90s, if there was a girl, you know, the pretty cheerleader or whoever it was, and you had a photo of her in a bikini, it was a really big deal. Oh, my God. Everybody wants to see this picture of this girl in this bikini. And now with Instagram – you know, you're almost an outsider if you don't have bikini photos or if you're a guy, you don't have pictures of yourself at the beach in just your shorts. Uh, and with the sexting and, and trading nudes that goes on, you know, that's all over the place. I've asked my kids, you know, my daughter's 21 now, my son's 17. You know, w- when you guys are in high school, was there this kind of revenge porn or trading of nudes and stuff? And they say, absolutely, absolutely. Everybody's seen them. Everybody knows they're there. And nobody even thinks about posting photos of themselves half naked on Instagram. That's just what people do these days. And, you know, 25 years ago when you and I were in high school, that was just not something that happened. That was that was just not part of the culture. And in 25 years, you can see, you know, the influence of the internet and the influence of social media on changing what the norms are. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but we're seeing you know, statistics come out now with this generation of 18 to 30-year-olds who grew up on the internet, and they are exponentially more addicted to pornography than guys your age and my age or you know, guys even older than us. You know, Having that unfettered access to any kind of pornography you want to look at, because let's admit, you and I, we had to tr- try to find a magazine, and it was very vanilla, normal sex that we'd see in a magazine where you you can get, you know, three Asian chicks and a black guy and two Eskimos and two horses and, you know, a nun. And you can find that all together on porn now. You know, whatever you want, whatever depraved thing you're looking for, you're going to find it out there. You're going to find extreme uh, over-the-top pornography in a way that we couldn't before. And like I said, we give every 12-year-old a smartphone. You don't think they know how to use Google? Um, they they do. And what we need to do is have them understand that looking at this stuff may not be all it's cracked up to be. I, I love that you said we don't know if it's good or bad because I, I think part of it is not just that, that there's porn. The other part is that there's no one really talking to children about what they're seeing, right? It's like, okay, it's, it's, it's part of your life is what happens to you, but the other part is what you perceive what happens to you. Growing up, my mom had uh, these sex books in the house 
but they were about the anatomy of sex and the intimacy of sex. And, you know, it had all, you know, it, it, it labeled the areola and, uh, and the labia majora. So I, I knew all the scientific terms, even though there were nude pictures and erotic nude pictures, uh, it was it was set against a, a medical uh, backdrop. So there was a, a medical context for what I was looking at. And my mom was always uh, very open about uh, talking about sex. It was, it was it was not a big deal. Where I feel like a lot of kids are are, look, are shamefully looking at these photos and and taking it in, and only being parented by media, being parented by other kids their age. And so there's no context, and they grow up with this shame and this guilt, and they and they think that to to look at a woman, you have to be sneaky about it. And I, I think the parents haven't. The, uh, the adults in a room haven't caught up to the technology is what it feels like. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And we were also raised, you know, in a society that while sex was always sold to us, uh, the idea of looking at pornography was kind of a taboo. Because what did pornography involve? It involves naked people. It involves people having sex. It involves what gets you off and, you know, something different gets everybody off. And a lot of people don't want to admit what it is. It, you know, pornography involves masturbation and everybody wants to pretend that they've never done that in their life. Uh, so you've got all of these general taboos surrounding this one thing. And I think that a lot of people especially older people, are afraid that if you have a normal conversation about pornography, it sounds like you are endorsing it. And I think that's, uh, you know, what my parents' generation, you know, stick your head in the sand and pretend that it's not there. And that's how we'll get through. And that has, you know, maybe that worked when there was only magazines. Maybe that worked when there only was videotapes. But we're now in a world where, you know, in the time it takes you and I to do this interview, there's a kid out there who has going to see more sex acts in the you know time that you and I are talking than their grandparents saw in their entire lifetime. Because that's what we have at our fingertips now is this just, like I said, unfettered access to pornography and everything that comes with it. And there needs to be some processing and some distillation of it. Um, before the uh, virus hit, the very last presentation I did for a college was at a health center not too far from here. And it was for a group of women uh, – probably about 15 of them, mostly students, a couple of faculty members. And I don't remember how we got talking about it, but one of the things that really struck me and has really stuck with me is that these uh, women started talking about how they did not like to have sex with virgin men because virgin men have grown up on the pornography that's out there now. And even the most normal you know, heteronormative, vanilla, you know, run-of-the-mill porn that you're going to find these days shows men in very aggressive stances against women. There's a lot of talking down to them, demeaning them, being overly aggressive, choking, uh, this type of stuff. And these young men 
who are going to have sex for the first time, they're taking all of their cues from pornography. And these women were telling me that they didn't want to be with these guys. They didn't want to have to retrain them. They didn't want this aggressive, you know, over the top, uh, not even Don Juan type, but just a, a guy who has taken his cues from pornography because that's not what it's really like. And these women wanted to be with men who, you know, had had multiple partners because by this point they realized what was real and what, you know, having sex is really like and, and, you know, the intimacy that's involved or, or even just the, you know, give and take of it. It's not about a man dominating a woman and, and fresh and uh, a lot of these freshmen and sophomore girls, especially, said that in high school and at the very beginning of college, you have a lot of men who are virgins and they have this mindset. And so when people ask me, well, what's the danger of porn these days or what can happen? I can quote you a million and one statistics from a thousand different studies, but that story really stuck with me as to what porn is doing to our society. This was just one small group of women in one college, but I have a feeling that if you did a survey throughout America, maybe even throughout the world, you would hear much similar stories. And and that's the effect that porn is having on our society. And it's giving us a unhealthy sexual society. And if we don't start dealing with this, if we don't start talking to these men and even these girls when they're, you know, do it age appropriate, but you can start talking when they're seven or eight years old. You can make it a little bit, you know, more graphic and a little bit more real to life when they're 12 or 13. But, you know, it's, it, it has to be a conversation that we have to start having. Okay, so how do you have a conversation with a seven or eight year old about this? And is the conversation different between a girl and a boy? I don't really think so at that age, because I think, you know, kids at seven or eight, number one, they don't know what pornography is. So it's not something about shaming them or teaching them levels of pornography or anything like that. You can say this in the simplest terms, you know, number one, uh, you don't ever let anybody take pictures of your body parts that are under your bathing suit or under your T-shirt. Uh, that's just not allowed. And you don't ever take pictures of anybody doing that either. Uh, you know, and then you say something very simple like if you're using your computer or you're using your tablet or you're with a friend and a picture of a naked person or two or three naked people come up on a screen, just come let me know and we'll talk about it. And you can leave it at that because if the kid has a question, they'll ask it. Otherwise, they've taken the information in, much like they take the information in when you say, if you see a cigarette, don't put that in your mouth. That's for adults. Uh, or, you know, look both ways before crossing the street. Kids are sponges that want to learn, and they're not attaching the kind of taboos to pornography that you and I or people our age might because they, they haven't heard any of this before. And I think that when you start to be 10, 11, 12, that's when you can have different messages for kids. Um, I think that, you know, you need to teach uh, women that, uh, you know, this is not a glamorous thing to do or teach girls is not a glamorous thing to do. Teach girls that this is not a way to gain affection from a boy or or a girl or whoever it is that they're uh, you know, they like, um, because right now the culture is about sending lewd pictures to each other. 
And, you know, that can blow up in people's faces. It's it's happened, you know, numerous times. Um, you know, type in revenge porn stories into the Internet and you're going to get hundreds and thousands of stories of people who regret doing that kind of stuff. When it comes to the boys, you know, I think that you have to explain to them what porn-induced erectile dysfunction is, P-I-E-D. This is essentially where a boy uh, looks at so much porn that they fry their dopamine receptors and their pleasure centers, the oxytocin, the serotonin, and all that stuff. Uh, they, they fry them to the point that they can only get off when they are looking at pornography. And I've met several guys who are between 18 and 25 that have had that happen to them. And I think that if you tell 13 and 14 year old boys about this, it might serve as a big deterrent because 13 and 14 year old boys are not truly addicted to pornography yet. They may watch too much, but they're not truly addicted yet. And I think that most of these boys want to have girlfriends. They want to have normal sex lives. They can't wait to have sex. You know, they're, they're, raging hormone machines at that point. And I think, and yes, this is scaring them. It's not shaming them, but it is scaring them. If you can scare them into thinking that their penis isn't going to work, because we have instances of people's penis not working because they watch too much porn, I think you might keep them away from it. Absolutely. You know, I, I love that, you know, there's one side of it where it's all about the, where we do want to teach the fear part of it of like if you watch this thing then it'll stop working and then there's the other side where in in europe you know i i think uh part of it is you know it starts with sex ed and i think in sex ed and here in america it's very much the objectification of men and women of like here are the parts and here are the here are 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 here are are how the parts work whereas in europe they not only talk about the part of the body, they also talk about how to uh, initiate intimacy and connection. There's a verbal uh, element. There's an emotional element of sex education that is lacking in most U.S. schools for whatever reason. And so when we have a, 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 an educational system that is uh, talking about men and women in terms of body parts and function, um, I, I think that then we, we raise a generation of raising generations of people who are in some ways learning to objectify uh, women and, or, or men and women and pushing them uh, towards porn in a way. And uh, where's the conversation on intimacy and connection and conversation? Absolutely. And that, that goes back to what those uh, women in college were saying, is that, you know, it's not realistic what you see on the screen. Uh, I saw a statistic not too long ago, and I'm going to have to dig it up and make it part of my regular routine. But it was something like 33% uh, of men have a three-way in their life, and less than 20% ever experience anal sex. Now, to most heterosexual men, those are two of the peaks of what you can do in a bedroom. But the reality is, 
It doesn't happen for the vast majority. Yet you watch pornography and you think that it's, you know, it happens all the time. And, you know, you watch pornography and you think you really want to be a pizza man because the sex is endless. And, you know, as as goofy as that is, if we're getting messages that the pizza man is always having sex and we know that's, you know, just silly, why is the other stuff not just as silly? Well, because we want to believe it's true and it's not true. And these guys who are, you know, 15, 16 years old want to believe this is what women want, want to believe this is the way women act. And, you know, any simple documentary about how porn movies are made will show you the most mechanical, you know, least intimate thing you've ever seen. Um, and you'll see people who are not having fun at their jobs. Uh, you'll see people who, you know, mostly wish they would have gone down a different road. But when you view an edited final product and you're a impressionable guy going through puberty of 13, 14 years old, you think this is what's being presented. I mean, you got to admit, every other show on TV is a reality show right now. And uh, it doesn't get much more real than sex. So I think that guys believe what they're seeing. And uh, that's to the detriment of our society. How do we define porn addict? What, what's, the, what's the definition or, or what's your working definition of porn addiction? Well, I say, number one, take away the porn because addiction is addiction is addiction. While there is obviously different side effects and different outcomes to various addictions, if you study what happens in the brain of an addict, whether it's a heroin addict or a gambling addict or a food addict or a porn addict, largely the same things are happening in those pleasure centers. You are stimulating six different chemicals in there with dopamine being the, uh, the big one. Uh, and what you're having happen is that you are flooding these pleasure centers and these receptors. So what happens is that the next time you need a little more and next time you need a little more to achieve that same high that you're getting. Now in alcohol, usually that means you go from beer to wine to mixed drinks. In gambling, you know, it's $10 a hand of uh, blackjack. Then it's $100 a hand. Then it's $1,000 a hand because you're chasing that same high and things have to get more extreme. It's the same thing with pornography. Uh, you know, most people start out with just nude pictures or, or just, you know, very commonplace vanilla sex and tend to ratchet it up. You know, if you go on a porn hub or, or one of these other sites and you look at the genres they get pretty extreme and pretty out there because there are guys who need to watch you know three people having sex while they smash food in each other's faces because that's the only thing that gets them off this week and next week it'll be something else they've got to keep ratcheting it up um, and ultimately addiction is having your brain just so in tune with something and so needing that little flick of the pleasure center that despite understanding there are negative effects physically, mentally, despite understanding there are negative effects in your outside environment, you are addicted to this behavior or this substance and you can't stop using. So you know, ultimately, it's just about understanding you have a problem and not being able to do anything about it. I love that. Thank you for sharing it. And you're, you've written this book because you have struggled with porn addiction. Can you, can you take us through your journey? Did it start for you at seven or eight? 
Uh, for me, it started about 11, 12 years old. Um, I, for some reason, the moment I saw it, I knew that I had found something special. My older cousin had, had a couple of, uh, penthouse or hustler magazines. It, it was, it was depicting actual sex. And the moment I saw it, I knew I had discovered something special. I knew I had discovered something that would make me feel better, that was going to relieve my stress, relieve my anxiety, take me away. And I couldn't even tell you as an 11 or 12-year-old what I needed to be taken away from, but I recognized it the moment I looked at it. You know, Earlier I said that you don't have you know, 13-year-old boys who are addicts, but I think that 11 or 12, I already was on the path, definitely. Um, I knew it. The only other time, and this is when people tell me, well, porn addiction isn't real, you know, I I tell them when I was 14 or 15, just a couple years later, I got drunk for the first time at a wedding and seven or eight glasses of champagne into it. It dawned on me how great I felt. And I understood why people drank and I felt better about myself and I felt confident and all these things. And it made me feel the exact same way that the pornography made me feel. I found something else that itched that scratch in my brain that that flooded my dopamine receptors with pleasure juice or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it just it just was this calming, good feeling. And it was the exact same for both alcohol and pornography. And throughout my life, up until I quit using both in 2014, they were they were interchangeable. You know, it was really about what I needed that day, where I was that day, who I was around that day, which of my addictions that I would use to uh, to get it to, you know, solve my problems and, and, and make myself feel better. Um, after I recognized pornography was something that made me feel better. Uh, it wasn't too long before I found a video store that would rent to me. You know, I'm 14 years old. This is this was my average day after school. If I didn't have extracurricular activities or sports or whatever it was, 14 years old, I would ride my bike to the video store and I would rent two triple uh, X movies on my way home from the video store. I stopped at this one convenience store independently owned where it was well known. They would sell alcohol to anybody. So I would buy either two or three bottles of beer, never had the guts to bring a six pack up, but I'd buy two or three bottles of beer. I would then go home. And before my parents got home from work, I would watch one of the movies and drink one of the beers. After they went to bed at night, I would watch the other movie and drink the remaining beer or two. And I did this for many years when I finally moved out on my own. Um, it obviously became very easy to use porn or to drink. And I can look and for the next 15 years as I was building my career as a journalist, um, as I was, you know, first in the dating pool and then ended up meeting my wife when I was 26 and building a family, um, I utilized pornography secretly, but I still used it probably three, four times a week in the good times. And those times where stress and, and, and anxiety were bigger in my life, I was using almost every day. And it's, it's the same pattern for the alcohol, um, during that whole time. So, you know, it was right there always with me the entire time. Uh, Now, what did your parents do? work my parents my parents are my parents were elementary school teachers all right so growing up your parents are elementary school teachers 
And I would assume, being educators, that there, there would be the, how was your day? Let me talk to you, blah, blah, blah. What was it about talking to your parents about this that you felt like you, you couldn't do? They were hardcore conservative Catholics. And you just don't do that in my house. You know, you, you barely talk about any problems the family has at all, um, much less something this intimate. My house was not one where people walked around in their underwear, much less walk around naked. Uh, it was a very sexually conservative house. Uh, you know, if I had HBO on when I was 10 years old and some breasts appeared on the screen, my mother made me change the channel right away. Of course, if Rambo was on and, you know, S Stallone was killing 50 people, that was fine. You know, I got a very uh, sex negative message from my parents. Um, when I was a little kid, and this is something, you know, that I, I often mention, um, I was babysat from about two or three years old to up about seven, uh, with the, at this one house where I actually was abused both sexually and mentally, uh, or mentally, emotionally, however you figure it. Most people who end up as porn addicts as high as 90, 92%, according to some studies have abuse in their background, have some kind of unresolved childhood trauma, be it physical, mental, or sexual abuse. And that was the case for me. And that home that I was in when I was being taken care of um, was a very sexually inappropriate place. So not only was I, did I grow up with very conservative parents, but during the day when I was at this babysitter's house, I was getting one message about sex. And then at home at night, I was getting a very different message about sex. So it was it was very confusing for a kid who's five, six years old growing up. And I think that both the pornography and the alcohol allowed me to kind of forget about that stuff that happened to me. Um, it wasn't until I went to rehab for alcoholism that a lot of these memories started coming up about what happened when I was a kid. And it wasn't until I was actually in rehab for alcoholism that my caseworker started saying to me, I think you have a problem with pornography, and got me to talk to a certified sex addiction therapist who helped me work through some things and made me recognize that not only was my problem not just alcoholism, my problem was porn addiction, and it actually predated my alcoholism. At between, so from the ages of two and seven, uh, you are being sexually abused. Uh, was it a boy or girl, or man or it, woman? It was a woman. She was, uh, I think, late 40s, early 50s. I can look back now and recognize how sick she was. She had some severe OCD issues. Um, I remember, I mean, this is now almost 40 years later, I remember some of the stories she told me about being abused when she was a kid. Uh, you know, it was it was not a good environment for, for children to be taken care of in, but I was scared to death to ever say anything to my parents um, for fear of what would happen to me that, 
you know, she ended up getting ill for with whatever when I was seven years old. And I ended up going to stay with my grandmother after school because she just retired, which was a relief. Uh, but I kind of blocked all this stuff out for darn near 30 years. And it wasn't until I started working with a sex addiction therapist and started remembering stuff that happened that it was like, oh, OK, I'm putting these pieces together and, you know, my survival instincts and my coping mechanisms started to be formed when I was there. And all I was trying to do was get through to the next day. And while that may be a coping mechanism for a six-year-old, it's not a good coping mechanism for a 36-year-old. But my coping mechanisms, my survival skills never really became that of a fully functioning adult. And that's why I leaned so heavily on the alcohol and the porn um, for those next 30 plus years because I didn't know how to cope with my feelings. I didn't know how to cope with my fears. You know, I, I didn't want to look myself in the mirror and see what was really there. I couldn't tell you exactly why, but I, my worst moments were when it was just me sitting by myself. You know, I learned to detach really well. I can sit in a waiting room for two hours and it feels like 10 minutes to me because I'm just able to detach from my mind. Um, I, I taught myself how to get out of my own head um, because I needed to as a survival skill when I was young because there was so much trauma going on up there. And as I became an adult, I became very successful in my uh, local community. I started a, after years of being a journalist, I started a lifestyle magazine. I launched a film festival. I ran for local office um, as a city councilor and won. You know, I did a lot of compartmentalizing of my life because it was easy to control if I was just kind of playing a character at any time. And it wasn't until I got into rehab and I got into recovery and started doing the hard work that I came to a Appreciate that all things are interlocked. You can't live your life in a series of boxes. Your life is one giant box with all these smaller boxes in it, and they all intersect. They all overlap. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Each piece moves into the other, and it's not until you see the full picture that you can really understand how you got to where you were or how you became the person you did. And that's that's what recovery was for me. Was unlocking all these you know boxes and figuring out how I became the person I was and how all those things reacted with each other and once I understood that and once I made the really tough march through that trauma and turned it from unresolved to resolved it actually made the addictions a lot easier to deal with because you know, I'll tell you Leo the addictions are not the ultimate problem the ultimate problem is the unresolved trauma. The addictions are just symptoms of it. Wow. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Joshua, please repeat that again, because uh, that's such an important point. Uh, the, the addictions aren't the problem. It's the unresolved trauma. Can, can you say it again in your own words? Yeah, absolutely. When people look or people try to uh, take care of their smoking habits or porn or whatever their addiction is, especially if it's after a long time, they often lose sight of the bigger picture. Your addiction is just a symptom of unresolved trauma. Now, it doesn't have to be sex abuse. It doesn't have to be physical abuse. 
your parents could have been killed in a car crash when you were eight years old, and that left a scar. So I don't want anybody to think they have to be abused to have trauma. You don't. But your use of substances or your behaviors with addiction are almost always just band-aids for that deeper wound of trauma. And you need to deal with the trauma to deal with the problem. You know, it's if you take care of that addiction, you know, that's great. You'll probably end up going right back to it eventually, or you'll just or you'll find a different addiction to go to. Until you deal with your unresolved trauma, you're not truly going to get through your addictions. And I can tell you that having gone through that trauma, having resolved it, it's actually a lot easier to quit your addictions once you resolve that trauma. You know, there's a book called Body Keeps the Score where uh, it's, it's gotten like great reviews. And one of the ways he talks about uh, people dealing with their trauma is uh, physically, because he, he talks about basically how we store the trauma in our body and how yoga and movement are great ways for us to deal with the trauma. How, what were the steps? And, and please take your time because there's so many listeners who are struggling with unresolved trauma and, uh, and, and their symptoms are porn or food or uh, uh, drugs and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, and they, they don't know where to begin. They don't know how to start. Can, can you take us through all the things? Yeah. Uh, the first thing that I would urge people to do, because most people, number one, don't like the term addict because they, they hear defective when they hear addict. So let's just say you have a bad habit or let's say you have a, a maladaptive hobby. It doesn't matter what we call it. You have a behavior that you want to change and you're not sure how to do it. Now, a lot of the reasons is because People know that changing is very hard work, and people don't know who they will be at the end of the change. And when it comes to addiction, you're now talking about being a new person without the one thing that has always been by your side. You know, with, with me, with pornography, the greatest thing about pornography for me, somebody who has control issues, is that the person on the screen never says no. That's what the allure to porn was to me. It was a lot of control because the person never said no. The person never told me to take out the trash. The person never talked back or said anything negative. It was an escape from the real world. And the idea of having to live in the real world without having this escape, well, that was really scary for me. Um, so what I suggest and this is what happened to me when I ended up going into uh, alcohol rehab and started talking to a sex addiction therapist. They put me into a first into a group situation where I didn't say very much for a little while. And I just sat there and listened to other uh, porn addicts who were early in their recovery. It wasn't a 12-step meeting. They were just early in their recovery. And for the first time in my life, I felt not alone. These people were talking about behaviors and different routines and things that the porn did for them that I know that someone without a porn addiction would never understand. But these people understood. And that was the most powerful thing for me at the moment. And I saw people who had begun to do the recovery and people who were feeling better. So my what I always urge people before I say go to a 12-step group or go to therapy, find somebody 
that has been through this before. Find somebody who you can relate to. Find somebody who's not going to judge you. One of the things I've been doing the last three years is actually, and I, I hesitate to call it coaching people, but it's almost a kind of advisement where a lot of guys are scared to death to go to therapy and talk about this. And they'll come to me and I've, you know, started this, I don't want to call it a company, but I've started this service where I'll talk to them three, four hours and get them to be ready for therapy because they've never talked to somebody like me who is also an addict. They can't tell me about anything they've ever seen and it's going to, you know, make me judge them. You know, they can talk freely about what's happened to them, uh, you know, be it sexual abuse or things that they have done, uh, sketchy that may be sexual or stuff that they've looked at or how it makes them feel. You know, and I, what I try to do is just get them to a point where they're ready to go get some real help. And that's what you have to do when you're finally ready to go get the real help, you need to understand it's, you know, you got to commit yourself to it. It's going to be a rough road. It's going to be sad. It's going to anger you. It's going to scare you. You're going to remember things that make you wonder if you're going crazy um, because all of a sudden something's there that wasn't there for the last 25 years. Uh, it's going through recovery is not fun but you feel so much better with every step you take. You have these aha moments where all of a sudden something from your professional life clicks with something from your personal life. And for instance, for me, I always owned my own companies and ran my own companies with employees. Well, why did I do that? Because I had control issues. I had control issues going back to that babysitter's house where I had no control over my life. And she would put me in a dark room for two hours or four hours. She would send me outside to play at 10 in the morning. And I didn't see her again until my parents came and picked me up at four. You know, I had no control over my life and control became a uh, priority. So instead of taking direction from bosses, which I did in jobs when I first started out, it was important for me to start my own companies, not because I could make big money, not because, you know, it would make me well known or anything like that. I needed to have control. And I was able to make that connection pretty early on through therapy. And just understanding something like that, how much control played a factor in my decision making in life has helped explain so much about me. And as you continue to unravel who you are, and you'll hear the uh, metaphor of peeling the layers of the onion to keep getting into that little core, um, it's an amazing process. And it's very hard in the beginning. And in the beginning, you also need to uh, have some cognitive behavioral therapy, some dialectal behavior therapy. So in the moment, you know how to stay away from porn or eating or gambling or whatever what's happening. But as an as you begin to understand yourself, it's easier to stay away from these things that you used to escape who you were. Because once you embrace who you are, once you embrace your origin story, you don't need those things to keep running away. You just have to accept the story and accept that the story isn't over. You can continue your life. If you would have told me 10 years ago 
that I would be sitting here on a podcast having written three books about pornography addiction and being talking about my own pornography addiction, I would have said you were absolutely crazy. There's no way I'd ever do that. I'm a magazine writer. I'm a magazine publisher. You know, I'm, I'm a local politician. This is who I am. But now here I am 10 years later. I work from home. I, I barely see anybody in my real life, but I'm happier and healthier than I've ever been. And I feel like talking about pornography addiction is my true calling. And I just had to get through all that other stuff to get to here. I had to do the magazine. I had to do the local politician stuff. I had to get that stuff out of my system before I was ready to truly recover and truly heal. And I'm just so sorry that I waited so long. I wish that I recognized I had a problem earlier. I wish I would have been pushed into things earlier. Um, ultimately, recovery was the best thing that ever happened to me. If anybody out there has issues with drugs, alcohol, food, gambling, sex, whatever. If you have the resources to go to a decent inpatient treatment center, I would urge you to do that because it absolutely was the most transformative uh, 10 weeks of my life that I was there. Most people go for four or five weeks. I needed 10. Some people need even more. But this is a serious thing that I am so glad that I took care of uh, because I, I, I never thought that I had an alcohol problem. I never thought that I had a porn problem. I just thought that I had the life that I had. But now that I have control, like I said, I am physically, mentally, spiritually so much healthier than I've ever been in my life now at 44 than I even was at 24. And, you know, I thank God that I'm here now. I wish it would have come earlier, like I mentioned. But um, anybody who's listening who thinks they have an issue, it's only going to get worse unless you get help. Because addiction only ends in one of a few ways. You lose family and friends. You become financially ruined. You end up in trouble with the law or you end up dead. That's what happens to addicts in the end, unless you get things fixed. And thank God I did get things fixed. And that's the message that I try to bring to people, porn addiction specifically, because that's really where you know my, my demons lay. And there's so little out there about it that I wanted to create some resources and share my story because I know I'm not the typical porn addict that people think of. I know people think of a 19-year-old guy in his mom's basement who has never kissed a girl in real life. And while I'm sure that there are some people who are like that, I have met people from the age of 14 years old up until their early 80s who are uh, porn addicts. I've met men, women, every nationality, every religion, every demographic background, you know, wealth and whatnot that you can imagine. Uh, there is no stereotypical porn addict, just like there is no stereotypical addict with any addiction. And People who think they have a problem need to go and get it taken care of and get help before it becomes that runaway addiction and reaches that critical point of no return. When when you talk about recovery and the porn addiction, um, I, I forget what the question was I, I was going to ask you, but it, it seems like Part of it is getting involved in a group. You, you went to inpatient therapy for 10 weeks. Um, what are you doing now on a daily basis to, uh, I would imagine there's some upkeep 
that has to be done. I would imagine that there is still an impulse. Are you still going to therapy? Are you, or is, there, is there a daily routine or something that you do on a daily basis to, to keep you on the path that you're on? Well, it's for me, I think I'm a little different because I've gone down this sort of professional road with porn addiction in writing the books, in giving uh, presentations and whatnot. So a lot of it is almost professional for me at this point. And kind of like, you know, I think if you work uh, someplace, you don't want to deal with it at the end of the day. I, I, I don't feel a lot of pull towards porn at this point. When I was writing my last book, uh, I needed some statistics off of Pornhub and off of a site called Chatterbait. Um, to put in the book. And I hadn't looked at a porn site in over six years. And I was sitting here saying to myself, can I do this? Should I do this? Should I ask my wife to go look up these numbers? Should I, you know, ask a friend to go look up these numbers? And I just decided to myself, you know what? No, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do this. And if I feel some pull towards it, I'll stop immediately. Well, I was I was on Pornhub for about 15 minutes writing down statistics. And yeah, I saw plenty of uh, thumbnails of people who did not look sexy at all. They looked like they were unhappy. They looked like they were in pain, uh, both physically and emotionally. There was no draw to it because I don't have those things inside me that need the pornography anymore. And that was really a, a giant test for me. But that I did that back in uh, early May, and it's been months and I haven't had any pull towards it. So I, I feel very good about that. I still do see a therapist. Um, usually I see her about once every two weeks now. Early on, I was seeing her twice a week in two-hour sessions. Uh, you know, the first couple years of recovery are much harder, uh, and you really have to do analyze uh, every behavior you make, every decision you make. And that's really what uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is. It's changing your thinking patterns on a very conscious level. And much like you know, muscle memory, it becomes uh, something that you don't have to think about. And I'm kind of at that place now. Also, you know, doing interviews, talking about it with people uh, like you, going on some of these radio shows or podcasts, I'm talking about this stuff all the time. So a lot of my upkeep is not what the normal person does because I've made this part of my professional life. Um, I can tell you that I feel more pull on an occasional triggered basis to alcohol than I do to porn because I'll stumble into a situation where 20 years ago I drank and totally forgot about it. Um, for instance, I hadn't been to an airport sober in since I was probably 21 years old. And a few years ago, I had to fly out to California um, to do some stuff. And I was in the airport here in Portland, Maine. And I walked in and even though I'd been three, four years sober at that point, I walked in and almost instinctively started walking towards the bar. And I said, oh, said to myself, oh my gosh, I have not been sober in an airport in nearly 20 years. And my instinct is immediately to go to the bar and catch a buzz before I get on a uh, get on a plane. And I experience those kinds of things here and there where I get that kind of uh, feeling 
happening. Happens a lot in the summertime where, you know, friends will be having a bunch of Coronas or something out on the lake. And I remember, you know, how great that made me feel when I was 22, 23. So I have to, you know, just walk away from it with, with me. What I've learned is I just have to remove myself from the situation to some degree. Um, and that's the way I handle it. And that's the way that's been my go-to for the last three, four years. Um, I don't try to have people not drink in front of me. I can go to a restaurant and someone can have a beer in front of me and I don't feel triggered. Uh, but I, you know, you have to learn where your triggers are. You have to learn what situations you can be in and what situations you can't be in and then tools to get away from them. Um, and like, like I said, Drinking has reared its ugly head a few more times than porn, but I can honestly tell you, going back to April 1st, 2014, I have not had a sip of alcohol, and I have not used pornography for self-pleasure purposes. I love that. You know, I want to backtrack a little bit because I imagine that, you know, with your having a successful career and at the time having you know, struggling, you know, with the porn and, and alcohol, that could send a mixed message also of like, clearly it's not a problem if I'm still thriving career wise, if I'm still moving up the ladder and you're getting validation from being elected, I think you said to, to city council, et cetera, yep. et cetera. So, so these outside um, uh, uh, influences, factors, whatever you want to markers could, could kind of trick you into thinking that, uh, you're doing okay. You're doing fine. As, you, you know, you met a lady. Uh, you're thinking about marriage. Your career's on the up and up, and uh, and you got your own business. So I could see how that could slow down your your the 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 urgency to go get help. Well, absolutely. And the, it's, you know, you don't even think of yourself in terms of being like an alcoholic. Uh, you know, you're just somebody who leans on something a little bit. Um, and like I said, I didn't even recognize porn addiction was a thing until I got to alcoholism rehab. Uh, it just I thought that, you know, it was something that made me feel good. It, it wasn't a problem like I knew the alcohol was. But I knew alcohol was a problem because society talks about it, because we hear about AA all the time. We hear about drunk driving. You can walk in you know, any restaurant or convenience store you go to, they sell the drug you want right there. Uh, when it comes to being a professional, I would go to all kinds of dinners and networking events and that kind of stuff. And there's always a bar in the corner of the room. So it just, you know, it's one of these things where, okay, Alcohol is available everywhere. I'm warned about alcohol all the time, but it's just so readily there and it makes me feel better. When it came to pornography, you know, obviously you don't utilize that in front of people and you don't really analyze if it's a problem or not. I know that I used a lot when I was drinking, so I just kind of, you know, figured it was it was an offshoot of my drinking. And that was that. And it was really eye-opening when I, I came to the realization, the understanding, and the acceptance that I absolutely had issues with pornography and that I had issues for so long. And they had played such major roles in my life. Um, 
And after I learned this, I tried to go find resources. Being a former journalist, I'm all about research. And when I went to the bookstore uh, in my town, there were books about alcoholism. There were books about addiction in general, but there weren't books about pornography addiction. And I can't do anything in this life very well except write. And I just said to myself that day, okay, well, we need to get some stuff out there. So my first book was just kind of my story of how my magazine rose and fell and kind of in in tune uh, or in parallel with my porn addiction. And then uh, my wife actually brought up the second book idea to me. She said that, you know, when I found out you were a porn addict, I went through a lot. So I started talking to wives and girlfriends and partners of porn addicts uh, that I that I met online and heard some of their stories. And they were even more heartbreaking than the addict stories. So I wrote a book along with a therapist. Uh, we co-wrote it for female partners of male addicts trying to ask you know some of the hard questions early on. And then when the pandemic happened and there was this explosion of both using and making pornography, I realized I had to start talking about that. So, you know, my life at this point is just kind of watching the world of porn, watching the world of porn addiction and trying to share the stories with mainstream people or with people who uh, don't know enough about it because we need to talk about this as a society. The scariest statistic in my book that I throw at people is from 2017, there was an organization called the Barna Group that interviewed thousands of men and women. And they found in the group of men from the age of 18 to 30, 32% said that they either had a problem with pornography or that they were a full-blown addict. Now, that's one out of three men between 18 and 30 who has an issue with pornography. If we don't start taking care of that, that's only going to rise because, you know, Interestingly enough, everybody thinks of, you know, the the you know white straight guy as the core audience for porn. And it was when porn was very expensive to produce and you needed a mass market. It's not that way anymore. If you look at statistics with pornography, the people who are getting addicted now are white women. It's black men. It's religious people because they can do this in the in the privacy of their own home. They don't have to be seen going into an adult bookstore or an adult movie theater like you had to in the past. They're also having porn that's made that caters more to what they want. Um, it's not expensive to make porn. It's not expensive to distribute porn. So whatever it is you're into, you can find. And you know that's to me what is scary. And that's why we have to keep talking about this because it's not just a problem for your pervert white guy anymore that it kind of was seen as and stereotyped as for decades and decades and decades. And what happens to this group of 18 to 30-year-old men when they become 40 or 50 or 60? And what happens to the kids who are now five or not even born if we don't start addressing this? They'll become addicts, and if statistics show anything, they'll become addicts in bigger numbers than the people before them. So we have to do something to stop this. Otherwise, 20, 30 years from now, you know, you think you think society is all about sex now. We're going to have a very sexually unhealthy society unless we take care of this. You know, there are some people who use porn uh, in between relationships. 
where they, they just broke up and they're the type that uh, they don't want to abuse women. They don't, they don't want to go out and start uh, quote unquote whoring around. Um, and so in their mind, they go, well, I'll, I'll just use porn to, uh, you know, alleviate myself in between relationships. Uh, that to me seems like it could lead to an issue. Have you heard about that type, that use of porn? Yeah, and and, and uh, you know, I also I try to uh, really drive home the point that I am not anti-porn because that's a silly thing to try to be. You're never going to ban pornography. You can go back look at cave paintings from ancient Phoenician times, and there's some pretty lewd X-rated stuff on the walls. You go look at you know Egyptian pottery and stuff from that era. You're going to see you know some really heavy duty triple X stuff. Go back as far as the Kama Sutra. You know, sex and pornography have always played major parts in our society. So I'm not advocating any kind of ban on it at all. And I also know that there are people who can utilize it and don't end up as addicts. You know, there are people who can drink responsibly and don't end up as alcoholics. There's a casino about 30 minutes from my house and I'll go there with my wife two or three times a year and I set limits for myself I'm willing to lose up to $50 on slot machines and if I win 100 I cash out and I do that like I said two or three times a year and that's that because I don't have the uh, gambling gene but I can understand how somebody could get addicted to gambling and get addicted to the uh to the action um I think that we just need the education around it. People need to be able to make smart decisions uh, if they want to. I, you know, I mentioned cigarettes at the beginning of our interview. There are still people who start smoking. I can't tell you why they start smoking, but they do. Yet they understand. Um, they may not appreciate, but they understand what the potential negatives are. If they start doing it, because we've educated society to that. We talk about that in school. We talk about that going back to being little kids when parents say, no, don't touch that. We need pornography to be treated in that way in the 21st century. It sucks as a parent that in 2020, you have to talk to your kids about pornography, but you do. You know, you don't have to necessarily talk to your kids about nuclear war and air raid drills and anything like that, because that passed. Things change. Culture changes. Right now, we're in a place where we don't really know how to handle or raise our kids in a world of high-speed internet pornography, and we've got to figure it out in a hurry. Um, that's, that's going to be very crucial. Are some of these guys who are in between girlfriends or wives or whatnot uh, going to become addicts? Well, potentially, but... I've talked to enough addicts. I've been an addict. I don't think that the addiction is really about what's on the screen. It's not about the man or woman or what they're doing. It's about that deeper unresolved trauma. And if these guys have unresolved trauma, well, maybe they'll go down that road. Maybe they'll maybe they'll become a gambling addict. Maybe something else will happen. You know, it's I, I, I still haven't seen anything conclusive about how people end up with the specific addiction that they do. Uh, but 
it's not about what's on the screen. It's not about winning a hundred dollars. It's not about a piece of cake in the fridge or, you know, another line of cocaine. It's about what it does for you at a very different level. Um, and I think that if, you know, guys who are trying to use porn responsibly, um, you know, feel that pull, feel something else is going on, they need to stop. They need to get some help. Um, like, and like I said, you know, I'm not anti-porn. I, I know that I can't look at it, um, but I also, you know, care too much about people's freedoms and care about my own freedoms to say that it should be banned. People should just learn about it and make smart decisions. I love that. And, and what what porn, what part, because you mentioned earlier that there are six uh, parts of the brain that it lights up. Can you go in a bit more detail about that? Well, there are actually six chemicals. You have your pleasure centers in the brain, and they've got long, huge names that look, sound like food preservatives I can't pronounce. Uh, but you have basically six chemicals that work in bringing you pleasure. Um, like I said, dopamine is the one everybody talks about because right now dopamine fasting is the kind of in vogue uh, statement that a lot of people use to try to rewire who they are and, and, and how they are. Um, but it is a chemical kind of thing that we need to understand. We are driven by our chemicals. Our bodies tell us what we need. Uh, you know, you can feel if you haven't had protein in your body for a, a long time and you need to have it. Uh, your body tells you what you need and your body at some point your pleasure centers told your brain or they're part of your brain. So they told the rest of you that, you know, if you use X, you will feel Y and you want to feel Y again and again and again. So what happens is you need more X. Uh, you need to add to it what, like I mentioned, going from beer to hard liquor. Well, you build up a physical tolerance to it. You build up a mental tolerance to it, but you're still chasing that high. You're still chasing that exact same high. Um, that that one beer did it for you when you were 15. Now you need half a bottle of tequila. And that's the same right across all addictions is that it becomes, you know, you need more of it. You need more extreme stuff In, with pornography, you know. We are not the pornography we look at. If we were, there would be so many more people who had sex with every type of gender, uh, every type of race, in very weird places, very dangerous sex, uh, because that's what's online. And that's what you can find online. And, you know, I, I myself, I can tell you that the kind of pornography I was watching at the end, you know, it involved things like transgendered people and it involved group scenarios and it involved situations that I would never get into in my real life. Because as an addict, it wasn't that I was looking for more sex and it wasn't that I was looking for, you know, crazy, weird, exciting sex. It's that I needed to hit those pleasure centers. And essentially, you fry those pleasure centers. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot like you throw a log on a fire. It catches pretty fast. Well, then you put the fire out. Well, you want to get the log going again. It takes a little bit longer. You need to use more kindling. Well, and that keeps going and going and going. And eventually you have this chunk of charcoal that is almost impossible to light up. And that's really what addiction is and what your uh, pleasure centers are. You know, 
I would look at, and this is a story you'll hear from a lot of porn addicts, they lose a ton of time because they're looking for the perfect piece of porn to get off to, essentially. They're looking for, they don't even know what it is, but they'll know it when they see it. And they have to keep looking and keep looking. And you hear stories from porn addicts how they lose three, four, five, six hours in a day just sitting there in front of the computer looking and looking and looking and looking and trying to find that perfect thing because nothing is hitting their pleasure centers. They've flooded them, they've burned them out, and they keep chasing it. Um, And that's where the porn-induced erectile dysfunction that I mentioned that happens with young guys comes from. I worked with one guy in an advising capacity last year. He was 22 years old. And the only he had a beautiful, nice, wonderful girlfriend. Uh, I, I dealt with both of them uh, through Zoom calls uh, before Zoom got popular. And totally normal relationship. Totally normal people, except this guy fried his brain on porn through his teen years, and he could not reach an orgasm with his girlfriend unless porn was playing over her shoulder in the room. The only way he can get off at this point, and I haven't talked to him in about nine months, so maybe things are different, but the only way that he could get off was was porn was playing in the room. So they actually developed a strategy. He would be in one room. She would be in another room. They would both be on their laptops or their phones or whatever it was. And they would sext back and forth to each other because in his brain, his pleasure centers were telling him he was looking at pornography, that this was not his girlfriend laying next to him in an intimate scenario. This was pornography. And they would essentially have virtual cyber sex right up to the point where he was ready to finish. And then she would come running in the room and they would finish up like a normal couple. And they had to do this because he fried his pleasure centers at a young age. And I have not read very much about them coming back and being super healthy. I know a lot of guys with the dopamine fasting and the no fat movement like to believe that there is a rewiring or a recalibrating that happens. Um, But there's a lot of uh, science that says that just doesn't happen. It can get better over time. You know, it's almost like scar tissue, but you never get back to the place that you were, much like if you were a smoker for 20 or 30 years. Um, And that's the thing that people have to recognize is that why are you doing this? What is driving you? It's those chemicals in your brain. That's ultimately what it all comes down to. You know, it's interesting. When I watched porn, uh, I immediately afterwards would find something to stimulate my brain. And I realized for me, porn was a distraction from boredom. It wasn't so much about uh, a childhood trauma as much as it was, I was just bored to death. And, uh, and I, you know, cause I read somewhere that if you really want to know what you are motivated by, then, uh, look at what you do after you do the thing. And I would immediately cut on like a documentary or read a book or do something creative. Uh, but, uh, I, when, once I realized I was just understimulated cerebrally. Then uh, I saw a drastic reduction in my uh, porn use. I, I, you know, I haven't you watched porn since me and my girl have been together. Um, but like you said, I'm not against it. It's just 
something that I haven't really been drawn to. So I thought that was interesting. And I don't know if you found in, in your use of porn or in anybody else's uh, in terms of the behavior right after the porn, you know, and, and how much that's a factor in discovering what's really going on. Well, usually with addicts, it's a lot more self-loathing, shame, uh, making deals with yourself not to go back there. Uh, you know, if you're sitting there, you know, you, you sit down at nine in the morning to, you know, quickly look at Pornhub and hopefully, you know, get off and move on with your day. Uh, and then you suddenly look in the corner of your computer screen, it's 3 p.m. Uh, and you still haven't finished. You know, you just lost six hours. That's not a matter of just being bored. Uh, that's a matter of having a real problem. And I think most porn addicts, even when they want to deny it, and I've had people who, you know, have screamed at me denying they have porn addiction when I haven't even asked them if they did. Um, because, I, you know, I think that there is this uh, stigma with it. There is this self-loathing. There is this shame, this fear, this sense of feeling lost, this sense of not being normal um, that comes with, and I can't say that it comes with every addiction, but I know that it comes for me and for many of the people I talked with, with pornography addiction, that you just feel lower than dirt. I mean, you almost feel like, you know, why did you need to do this? Uh, there, there's this, I used to, uh, have these, I, I not I don't say come to Jesus moments, but I just had these revelations after I would finish up where it's like, why did I just waste two hours looking at naked people? They're just people. And, and you know what? Every, every woman has breasts and every guy has a penis and sex is completely natural. We all got here this way. What is wrong with me that I need to watch two hours of this? What what the hell is wrong with me that this is something I I crave? This is something that I go to. This is something I go to again and again, and I can't stop. What is wrong with me? You know, it, it, it wasn't. It was. It was. It was just knowing that something was wrong, something was different. I was not using pornography like I knew most people used it. Um, I was somehow. Uh, I guess the word would be defective or different. Uh, I was I was sick in some way, but couldn't put my finger on all of it. And because it's porn, because it's naked people, because it's masturbation, I'm sure as hell not going to go any to anybody and ask about it. I don't want to tell them about all this stuff. This is embarrassing. And that's how you end up with a society where one out of every three men under thirty, you know, has a problem with porn because we won't talk about it. When, you know, you are at like a, a critical moment, a critical juncture, you, you haven't mentioned this, but in your response to me, you talked about how you thought about ending your life. Can you mm -hmm. take us back to that moment and what pulled you out of that moment? Yeah, this was 2013. It was Christmas night. Um, and I only know this because there was a Doctor Who special on and they were always on Christmas night. So I remember it was that night. Uh, I had known for quite a while that things were going bad. Statistically, I probably should have driven my car into a house or into a telephone pole and ended up dead that way because I, I was drinking and driving quite a, quite a lot. Um, but I knew something in my life had to give. My 
business was starting to fail or show signs of failure. Um, I left the city council because I hated it. My relationships with my wife and kids were a bit estranged. You know, I wasn't taking care of myself physically and I was drinking more and I was using more porn and I just felt like I was starting to spiral down a drain. And it was it was just this moment of clarity. After this Doctor Who show ended, I remember I turned off the TV, I was sitting on the couch, and I just had this moment of clarity of all this pain that I'm always carrying around, that I have been carrying around forever, that is just getting worse. Why bother? And I had this, like, almost a sense of calm come over me of, well, all I need to do is kill myself. Well, okay, I should probably go do that. And I don't know why, but I immediately recognized, I or I immediately said to myself, I'm going to do this carbon monoxide style because I'm somebody who doesn't want pain. I just want to close my eyes and go off to sleep. And I didn't think, okay, well, let's write a note or let me call a suicide hotline number. I never felt, I had thought about suicide in the past, but I never felt a strong draw to it like I did at this moment in time. And like I said, it was just, it was a calmness. It was a stillness. There was no conflict within me. There was, it, it was, it was just the thing to do. So I went out to my garage and I noticed that the car wasn't in the garage. Now, in the wintertime here in Maine, our regular car is almost always in the garage. We only drive our Jeep around because we live on a hill and the roads are horrible with the snow and the ice. But we needed to use both of the cars on Christmas because we went to my parents' place, we went to my uh, in-laws' place, and we have lots of food and lots of gifts to bring and to take home. So both of our cars happened to be in the driveway. And I saw that and was like, oh my goodness, I, I can't open the garage door. My wife and kids were asleep at this point. It's like, I can't open the garage door and drive the car and it's going to wake them up. Um, so I can't do this carbon monoxide style. And I said, well, there are some beams in the garage. Maybe I can hang myself. And I was looking around for rope. And at some point I just turned around and I saw the beam and I imagined myself hanging from it. And I imagined one of my kids looking through the window that led to my garage from our, our breezeway area and seeing their father hanging there the next morning. And it was like a light went on and it stopped. And it was like, what in the F am I doing out here? Whoa, 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 what just happened? And it was like I woke up from this fog, from this dream. I tell you, I have never, it, it still was, you know, four, I was four months away from uh, starting in sobriety and, and going off to rehab and, and beginning with recovery. But I tell you, I've never had a moment like that since. I, I hope that I never do again. But it was about a 10 to 15 minute window where had the car been in the garage, I, I think that I would be dead right now. And thank God it was Christmas. Thank God the car was in the driveway. Um, I, I would love to say I would have. Uh, woken up like I did, or I would have, uh, you know, something, some light would have turned on, and I wouldn't have done it. But I tell you, I've never had uh, this sense of calm over doing something like this before. Um, I've never 
known that it was just the right thing. You know, like as I, I, the idea of writing a note never entered my mind. The idea of leaving behind all my loved ones or what would happen to everybody, that never entered my mind. It was just this oneness and this stillness with ending it. And I look back now and it's scary. It's so scary that that kind of feeling could just wash over me. Um, I, I have no idea how it happened. And like, like I said, I just I thank God I've never had it since. I appreciate you sharing that story. And it's so important for the listeners out there to recognize that that sandstorm, that impetus, that 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 feeling, that psychic, uh, as you mentioned, Joshua, lasts for, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. And, and that's one of the reasons why the, the podcast is titled Before You Kill Yourself, because it is such a small window when we when we really feel like in and and want to end our lives. And if we can think about our, our child or a loved one or our purpose or just even, you know, doing the dishes or clipping our toenails, uh, we can we can we can buy ourselves enough time, 10 to 15 minutes uh, and and then to, to move past it and let it let it wash over us. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I tell you what I would do moving forward. Um, I had a great uh, counselor at the rehab that I went to, and he gave me this little technique that I used with alcohol, I used with pornography, I would use it with suicide, and I really use it with anything. So if you are challenged by something, you are feeling triggered, you're about to do something stupid, it's a very simple technique. Stand up and go sit over there. Just get out of your element and go sit somewhere else, whether it's the same room or a different room, whatever. Just go sit somewhere else. When I was in that airport in the story I told you about not too long ago and I knew I wanted to drink, I sat down where my gate was. It was across from a bar. I knew that if I sat at my gate, I would break and I would go have a drink. So I got up and I went and I moved a gate over. And I could still see the bar and I still had cravings. So I got out of my seat and I moved over and I went down another gate. And finally, that one was far enough away, but I still kind of felt it. So I stood up and I walked to a newsstand and I bought a Rolling Stone magazine. And I found one of those bank of monitors that tells you when uh, the plane is loading. And I watched that and read my magazine. I had to get away from it. And that's that was so much and so powerful in my early recovery. Just get up and go sit over there. And you just keep doing that until whatever the problem is passes. And eventually they call the gate and I go and I give up my ticket and I get on the plane and I can't drink anymore because I'm not at the bar anymore. I don't have access to it anymore. So I've I've uh, escaped that problem. You know, just stand up and go sit over there. I love that. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, because, you know, the environment definitely can trigger, as you said, walking into that airport triggered, uh, you know, your habit of drinking and uh, and just that idea of, of just, you know, changing your surroundings. You know, a lot of us do it impulsively too, where, you know, we get into an argument. We say, you know what, I'm going to go outside and go for a walk. You know, or I'm going to go get some fresh air. Um, you know, we, we, we automatically, most of us, uh, have this impetus to change our environment when we feel like we're under duress. You know, it's, it's part of the fight, flight, or freeze uh, that's triggered. But So I appreciate you sharing that uh, with the listeners. 
uh, yeah, to, to just get up. And, and I always say, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. Always pick flight. Always pick flight. Uh, and, you know, you talked about, if we have time, you talked about the wives of porn addicts. Is there anything that you can tell us, you know, one thing that stood out to you about what they're going through or their thoughts were, or what their experiences are? Well, um, unlike almost every other uh, addiction, I think that the partners get hit harder with porn and sex addiction than any other. Because if your husband ends up a gambler, you don't ask yourself if it's because you're not pretty enough. If your boyfriend ends up you know, a heroin user, you don't ask yourself if it's because you're not doing enough in bed. However, when it comes to pornography addiction, when it comes to sex addiction, you are dealing with people who are going through what is known as betrayal trauma. Because they feel like they don't know the person that they're with. They feel like that they've been lied to their entire relationship. A lot of women who discover that their partners are porn addicts wonder, who is this person? What else has he lied about? I don't know who he is. You know, he's been doing things behind my back. What else has he done? It really takes a toll on their psyche. Uh, It really can damage them something big. And what they have to understand for any uh, recovery to happen, for any healing to happen, the first thing a woman has to understand or a partner has to understand is that the addiction is not their fault. It has absolutely nothing to do with them. You may have the addict who hasn't accepted the fact they have a problem, blame you for not having enough sex, blame you for not dressing sexy enough, blame you for 101 things. It is not your fault at all. I look, I was a porn addict, like I said, going back to 11, 12, 13 years old. I met my wife when I was 25. I had had 12 years of porn addiction before I met her. So how could she have anything to do with it? And for the women who wonder how they missed it, you're not looking for it. You know, I had 12 years of learning how to hide a porn addiction. I was a master at hiding it. I was amazing at hiding it. And when you're not looking for something, like my wife was never looking for me to be a porn addict, it's very easy to pull the wool over their eyes and hide it. But at the end of the day, she had nothing to do with it. This was my longstanding issue dealing with trauma that happened 20, 22 years before I ever met her. Yeah, it took a toll on her. And thankfully, she works in the healthcare field, so she understands uh, the science of addiction a little bit better than your average person. But the thing that I always try to drive home to these women is that, number one, he's sick. It's an addiction. You know, I I think it's easier to find fault with a partner who is just looking recreationally because they are just looking to get off. They are just looking for some some, you know, sexy bodies on the computer screen. If your partner has a legit addiction, he has a brain disease, and it has nothing to do with you. If he had diabetes, you wouldn't blame yourself. Yes, he made the decision to look at porn once, and that led him down that road, but you genuinely don't shame or blame a smoker for trying it one time at first and developing a, a habit. You feel bad for them. You realize they made a mistake, but they have a disease, and you recognize it a disease, much like a, with a porn addict. You need to recognize it as a disease, and you need to recognize that 
um, you had nothing to do with this. Now, some stories like mine and very happily, my marriage is stronger than it ever has been. Some, the partner will not accept the fact that they are an addict or they will try to stay away from it and they can't, or the, the wife or the girlfriend simply can't handle being around somebody who has that problem. And in all situations, that's fine. You know, in the book that I wrote with the therapist, we don't tell you to stay with the person. We don't tell you to divorce the person. All we tell you to do is take a step back, take a deep breath, learn about the situation, and then make your decisions from there. Um, you know, it really is something that rocks your world. But in the case of my wife and I, and in the case of a lot of partners um, who I've met and couples that I've talked to, uh, facing this demon, facing it together, getting through recovery, um, only made their relationship stronger. So it isn't an instant death knell for a relationship. I love that. Joshua Shea. Uh, was it Shea? I, I didn't even ask you how you pronounce your last name. Was it Shea or Shea? I say Shay, but you can say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Is that we, we've covered so much ground from your, your journey to uh, recovery. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you feel like listeners should know that would be valuable for them? Uh, any effective tools or strategies or acronyms or anything that can help someone who's struggling with porn addiction right now? Well, you know, all, all, all I do is I remind people of two things. For the non-addict, there is no such thing as a stereotypical addict. Do not tell yourself that your husband is not an addict because uh, he makes $75,000 a year. Do not tell yourself that your wife cannot be an addict because she's a woman. Um, you know, do not tell yourself somebody can't be an addict because of their religion or their race or what they do for a profession or anything. Anybody can be an addict. Do not stereotype who a porn addict is. Um, that's part of the problem with our society is that we do that. Secondly, if you think you're a porn addict, get it taken care of. I miss my magazine. I miss that life I had before. When it was good, when it was going well, I miss it. My my addictions let my life spin out of control to the point that I had to basically take a wrecking ball to everything and rebuild. Um, part of the reason I'm out there talking about this is because I don't want other people to have to do that. If you recognize you have an addiction of any kind, talk to somebody else who has it or talk to somebody who's gone through recovery. Uh, get some help. Find some resources. If anybody out there needs resources, I have them on my website. That's recoveringpornaddict.com. Um, I write a lot about the process of recovery and you know stories about when I was an addict. Um, you can get my books through there, like three very different books that I've written. Um, and you can get links to shows like this one where I talk about different aspects of my addiction or different aspects of recovery. And you can also get in touch with me that way. So check out recoveringpornaddict.com if you have any questions. I just want to help people with this. Um, and ultimately, I also have to thank you for letting me come on your show because while I do carry a message, uh, I'm just the messenger. You are the medium. And I can't tell you how many people out there who control the medium are still scared to death to talk about this. And all that's going to do is perpetuate the problem. So thank you very much for uh, giving me this time today, Leo. Well, I thank you so much for talking about it, Joshua Shea. And I thank you listeners for tuning in. 
This is the last question to ask of all my guests because I always imagine that there's one person tuning in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Joshua? You never know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if you're on the precipice of killing yourself, I'm guessing you've had depression in the past. I'm guessing you've probably had anxiety attacks and whatnot in the past. You got through all of those. The way that I get through my depression, which I still have time, you know, sometimes few days at a time, sometimes weeks at a time. When I'm at the lowest of my lows, I tell myself that I know historically I rebound. I always get better. Might take a long time, might take a short time, but there are good times ahead. It's hard to see it when everything is bad, but from a historical perspective, I can recognize the ups and downs in my life. And there is no down that is so low, you will never come back up. So whatever you're thinking about doing, get up and go sit someplace else because it's going to get better and you just have to find that seat that makes it better. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you going into recovery or inpatient. Uh, you can uh, The phone number, 1-800-SUICIDE, is always in every, all the show notes, as well as 1-800-273-TALK. There's some international links. There's talk. There's chat. Uh, if, if neither one of those works for you, there's groups. There's individual therapy. So all of those are linked in the show notes, as well as the links to Joshua Shea's uh, books and information. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank you so much, Leo. I appreciate it.